Welcome to All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light driving scientific innovation in the 21st century. I'm Joel Williams, Associate Editor at Photonics Media. Join us as we explore the latest trends in optics, lasers, microscopy, and spectroscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape, brought to you by Photonics Media. Smaller is often better in photonics. Miniaturized imaging devices, fibers, and optical components are as much a focus of research as the applications that they enable. This theme is particularly prominent in biomedicine, although it also factors into components manufacturing, aerospace and defense, and sensing. The thing about photonic miniaturization is that it often requires super high-powered laser systems to achieve the desirable ultra-small properties. These laser systems can be enormous, and the unique properties that they possess and the distinguishing capabilities that they enable make them highly sought-after research tools. In North America, the LaserNet US consortium is increasing access to these lasers. The consortium consists of 10 high-intensity light source facilities in the US and Canada. Each facility offers distinct specifications and advantages as a result. Part of the role of the consortium is to pair researchers with a proper facility to carry out their work. This episode, we are joined by Chandra Brianne Curry. As LaserNet US's first ever coordinator, Curry oversees the evolution of the consortium, its projects, and the possibility that high-powered laser technology is enabling. Based at the SLAC National Accelerator Laboratory, a US Department of Energy Office of Science laboratory, operated by Stanford University, Curry's research interests are in high-energy density science. From the platform created by her position as LaserNet US coordinator, she is also locked into groundbreaking advances in fusion science, proton therapy, and plasma physics. The most powerful lasers in the country are unsurprising enablers of cutting-edge development in these areas. Curry and LaserNet are here to make sure that it all continues to unfold. Fusion energy science, particle therapy, and plasmonics aren't the only focus areas for today's users of high-power laser systems. We dive into some others as we begin episode 6 of season 5 of All Things Photonics. Here is news editor Jake Saltzman speaking with LaserNet US coordinator Chandra Brianne Curry. So I think there's really kind of like four things that are really exciting areas that our users are actively pursuing. Um, I think one of the the ones that is kind of closest to home for a lot of people um, is working on making um, cancer therapies um, more widely available and by shrinking uh, the accelerators that you need to generate things like proton beams for proton radiotherapy, but also looking at how materials can change on very materials under extreme conditions. So very high temperatures and densities evolve on very fast timescales, but also giving us uh, more insight into astrophysical phenomenon here on earth. So things like stellar and planetary interiors, conditions near a supernova or black hole, and shedding light on, on the origins of things like cosmic rays. And so we use these lasers to generate these really extreme states of matter and then probe them using various different techniques. The breadth and diversity of applications that the high-power laser systems in the consortium make possible requires a team of experts to ensure experiments in all disciplines are carried out to the fullest. At the same time, there's room for discovery. These systems are advancing in parallel to the technologies that they are used to advance. That means there's a lot of room for innovation and a lot of know-how. 
The applications themselves are very broad, and um, it really will require a large number of people from different disciplines to uncover the things that these laser systems can do. Um, and so these systems themselves are very large, and they're located in standalone facilities. And the ones we have across the U.S. have very different laser parameters or specifications. So the physics you do with one is not necessarily the physics you can do with others. And so by bringing all of these facilities together, we can bring the scientists to collaborate on these big questions um, using the facility that is best suited for the particular things. So some specialize on x-ray source generation, whereas others are focusing more on stuff like radiobiological research. And so we bring the community and get everyone excited behind a bunch of these problems at the same time. So this is not quite like going to the dentist where you take the next available appointment. This is, you have some work, you need the proper facility to enable that work. Is there a bit though of like this, this matchmaker, I suppose, for lack of a better term, function where, you know, where there is um, a job of making sure that these scientists have access to the right facility for their work? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that we're really trying to build into our process. Um, and so it, we bring this in at a few different stages. So the first thing that was actually established this past cycle, so this past year, um, was actually a mentorship program by what we call our Intense Light Users Engagement Committee. And what this mentorship program did was it teamed up new users or students with people that had experience on these facilities or doing the particular science and allowed them to iterate on their idea um, in order to identify the best facility and the best teams of people to, to pursue the science that they were interested in. So that's kind of like the initial step. But then once we get closer, once you have an idea and you start hashing it out and developing it, we require that our principal investigators and our teams speak with and coordinate with the facility point of contact. So this is somebody that represents the facility who is an expert on their facility, but also routinely meet with the point of contacts at the other facilities. So they're well-versed in all the different moving parts of LaserNet US. And so if you had an idea and you met with one facility point of contact and they felt that your work was better suited elsewhere, they can direct you down the line so that you develop your idea to work at one of these facilities. The light sources of which we speak are, to put it into technical terms, really big and really powerful. It's the nature of petawatt laser systems. Running such a laser requires operational expertise, as well as a deep knowledge of all the different applications for which such a system can be used. Curry uses the term big science to unpack what we mean by this, and to explain the working dynamics of a network of systems optimized for a range of parameters, including pulse energy, pulse duration, and repetition rate. So I remember back at the inaugural LaserNet US meeting, um, and we had a invited speaker that gave us a presentation on the history of big science, specifically in high energy physics. And so back as early as the 1950s, um, this is big science with these big facilities was a relatively new concept. And what they presented to us um, is that as these big facilities got more and more technically complex with lots of different aspects, um, the team started getting larger and larger. This was a kind of a paradigm shift for science. And so it's similar with our new petawatt laser facilities. You need to have expertise in a lot of different things from optics to plasmas to charge particle diagnostics. And so it's really, really important to have that collaborative atmosphere to start with. Now, 
In terms of operations, we are partnered with Laser Lab Europe, which is another consortium of high-power laser facilities that are located in the European Union. And um, they've been around for a bit longer than us. And so we've definitely taken, um, taken some guidance from what has worked well for them. And we look forward to kind of developing our network here in the US as well. Um, but I think one of the things that we really want to support and to, to drive here is that our network is driven by the needs and the desires of our user community. And so we have six subcommittees, which are um, really driving the different initiatives of LaserNet US, ranging from a committee that is targeting diagnostics to um, a simulations committee where we have world-leading experts on computer simulations to support our users to do predictive and to analyze the results that they get from our facilities. Prospective LaserNet facility users are required to submit a formal project proposal before gaining access to one of the consortium's 10 complexes. Curry's path to LaserNet started at the Jupiter Laser Facility at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, just about an hour's drive from SLAC where she bases her research today. LaserNet US was officially created in 2018, and Curry was named its inaugural coordinator in 2021. She brings to the role of coordinator firsthand knowledge of how these very large facilities operate. Her current work, to generate novel sources of ions and neutrons, means that she conducts research that benefits a considerable range of different applications. One of the areas we discuss with Curry is fusion ignition. Beyond being a very hot topic, it is also an extremely timely one. This winter, scientists at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory's National Ignition Facility tested a laser system in which fusion itself, as opposed to external heating mechanisms, provided most of the heat needed for a fusion reaction. The accomplishment will enable scientists to achieve higher levels of fusion performance on the road to attaining energy from nuclear fusion and self-sustaining fusion energy. Last summer, a separate experiment at the National Ignition Facility reached the threshold for nuclear fusion ignition for the first time. And earlier this month, a startup in Japan with designs for commercializing laser-based fusion for power generation closed an initial stage of funding worth $1 million. I was looking for a summer internship opportunity like many rising seniors in university, and I did a project at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And so this is one of our LaserNet US facilities. It's called the Jupiter Laser Facility. And so that first summer, um, I did a couple of experiments there and really got excited um, about the type of science that we could do with these systems. After that, I joined the group of Professor Siegfried Glenzer at Slack National Accelerator Laboratory, and his group also does research with these high-power lasers, but it focuses on combining them with X-ray-free electron lasers. And this is really neat because one of the challenges of using these big lasers is that it's really difficult to diagnose the conditions that you generate. They're very hot, they don't last very long, and at the end, your material is gone, so you can't look at it afterwards, so look at it post-mortem. Um, and so X-ray lasers let us really start trying to interrogate these systems on really short timescales to fully diagnose them. Um, and this is potentially transformative for high-energy density physics. And so my research has been using these high-power laser systems and coupling them with X-ray-free electron laser to um, investigate them with new precision. One of the things you mentioned, Lawrence Livermore, and if anyone has been paying attention to work branching out of or stemming from Lawrence Livermore, huge applications in fusion science or implications in fusion science. And I'll put you on the spot. Where's that field heading? Because it really does. I mentioned it sort of in our intro. Feel like we're on the cusp of something big here. Is there a timeline for that research? Or um, what should our listeners know about the state of fusion science and the high-powered systems that are invigorating this application? 
Well, so there's definitely a lot of optimism and momentum right now in fusion energy science. Um, and so there's a couple of things that are building that up. So you listeners have probably heard there was an ignition experiment at the National Ignition Facility over the summer, um, which had really exciting results. But there's also continued progress on construction of the ITER site. We're really optimistic that there's going to be more good news for fusion um, in the coming years, but we're still talking on the order of several several years to a decade here um, until we will actually likely see high fusion gain or sustained plasma confinement at fusion temperatures and densities. But I think there's a lot of things that are working in our favor right now, and I think that we can be pretty confident that we will see continued progress. The recent successes um, have attracted a lot of private investments, um, and we've seen a lot of new companies that have been formed tackling problems related to fusion energy concepts um, and and have their own concepts that they are pursuing. Um, But also the scientific results of these most recent ones are making people pretty excited. So this lets us really start attracting some of the best students um, into this area of research. And lastly, DOE has recently um, given the green light for the construction of a new high-power laser facility in the U.S., um, which is actually based at Slack, where I am. Um, and it's going to be called the Matter and Extreme Conditions Upgrade Project, where they're going to upgrade the laser systems to be state-of-the-art in the U.S. Uh, so high-repetition rate petawatt laser systems coupled with the X-ray fear electron laser, and where we'll be able to actually test a lot of the technical aspects um, which will be required for a inertial fusion energy plant. And so things things are going in the right direction. Um, and I think we'll see a lot of progress in the coming years. LaserNet US is growing quickly, with new facilities in the sites of the consortium and its leadership, and new partnership arrangements forming soon. The global network of high-power laser systems holds the key to scientific progress across a range of disciplines. The needle of progress is tilted in science's favor. So I think the biggest thing that we've seen in this past year um, is growth in our in our membership. Um, and so just in the last six months, we've grown from about 600 members to well over 1,200 members. And so these are people that are engaging in LaserNet US either as collaborators on experiments, attending our workshops, or just general interest in in what the network is doing. And so this is incredibly exciting to see the growth in our our membership. Um, We're also expanding our partnerships with other consortia. So we've formalized our partnership with the ELI infrastructure, so the extreme light infrastructure um, in Europe, which actually has the most powerful laser currently operating in the world in Romania becoming coordinated with, with their scientific um, endeavors there. And lastly, we are adding new facilities. Um, so the most recent um, addition to LaserNet US, which is going to be available for user experiments within the next year or so, is going to be at the University of Central Florida. And so this adds new capabilities and ultra-fast tabletop science to our network. Our, our goal is to, to really span the, the wide range of applications and regimes accessible with these high-powered laser systems. This episode is sponsored by Omicron Laser, one of the leaders in laser systems and LED light sources. Do your biotech, microscopy, and industry applications require reliable and high-quality light sources? With a 36-month warranty, superior personal support, and customized solutions to meet your specific needs, Omicron's high-quality laser and LED light sources are made for you and made to last. Visit omicronlaser.de for more information and by Modulite, a laser company that designs and manufactures lasers and optics for better living. 
Modulite is the only vertically integrated medical laser manufacturer in the world, specializing in the fields of preclinical and clinical applications such as cancer treatments and drug development, quantum computing, and other laser solutions. For more information, visit Modulite.com. For the second time this season, we turn to the elusive terahertz band for some insights into myriad applications. Biomedical imaging, metrology, spectroscopy, and lasing are all in play in our next segment as we're joined by Miriam Vitiello, Director of Research at the National Research Council of Italy and Professor of Condensed Matter Physics at the Scuola Normale Superiore. Dr. Vitiello is a co-author on the 2017 Terahertz Science and Technology Roadmap. Her expertise in condensed matter physics has opened up research opportunities in the terahertz band, the transitional region between electronics and photonics. Dr. Vitiello has been honored for her demonstration of an electrically pumped random terahertz laser operating in continuous waves. Her group also demonstrated the first so-called detectorless scattering near-field optical microscope. That work supports 2D materials mapping, as well as devices on the nanometer scale. In the setup for the work, a quantum cascade laser works as both the source and the detector perceiving the microscope scattered light. Terahertz waves, first and foremost, are non-invasive giving them desirable properties in medicine, imaging, and chemical sensing. They're also linked with things like quantum cascade lasers, frequency combs, and optoelectronic devices. We caught up with Dr. Vitiello as she and her co-authors come together to create the 2022 Terahertz Technology Roadmap. This follow-up work, five years after the 2017 paper, is certain to encompass many of the same discussion areas as our conversation. Sandwiched between the microwave and infrared regions, here again is Jake Saltzman speaking with Dr. Miriam Vitiello on the intriguing applications and properties of the terahertz regime. So in the terahertz uh, spectral regime, uh, there is something of really fascinating because this is a transition region between the electronics and photonics, meaning between the components sizes which are smaller and larger than the radiation wavelength. This means that the terahertz frequency gap really offer unusual possibilities in borrowing concepts and technology for fundamentally different worlds. Also, terahertz radiation offers unique application perspective because, as most of the people know from the paper and from the journal, the terahertz waves are non-invasive, meaning that can penetrate clothes, tissue, are extremely sensitive to water content. And for this reason, they are widely exploited for imaging, for time-of-flight tomography, for time-resolved spectroscopy of gases, molecules, and compounds, which are distinctive fingerprints in this terahertz range, but also for more exotic applications in quantum technology, like, for example, coherent control of quantum system, for metrology, and also in the communication, in high-speed communication, because uh, the terahertz frequency carrier will become increasingly important for the higher bandwidth data communication. And this is what attracted me a lot, because this is a, a really a fascinating domain from a fundamental perspective, but also for an application perspective. This isn't the first time we've sought to dive into quantum cascade lasers and all things photonics. The compact light source is closely tied to work in the terahertz band, drawing favor for not just its power, but also its broad frequency coverage. There are other advantages and limitations. To understand them, it's helpful to place QCLs, specifically terahertz QCLs, in a context where they can be measured against other currently available instruments. 
So practically, one, one main thing that I have to say is that the most present-day equipment available for terrace generation is usually bulky, expensive, and often software from low-power output. Consequently, the new generation of compact reliable sources is the key for the development of this mostly untapped terrace range. And terrace quantum cascade lasers are providing to be good candidates to fulfill this task because they are the most remarkable example of quantum engineering, showing how artificial materials can be combined together to tailor the emission bandwidth on purpose. And this also show an incredible rich physics. They can be engineered to operate like standard Fabri-Pero laser, but also some as photonic crystal laser, as random laser, as frequency comp synthesizer. And this is the challenge that had led me to work in this field, specifically because there are still a lot of open issue with this kind of sources. One of the main is to push the operating temperature of the sources at room temperature to control the beam shape and the power extraction of these lasers carefully to demonstrate that they can emit short pulses, which is another application domain that can really allow to substitute to the conventional uh, terrace 10 domain spectroscopy system that we have now, this uh, miniaturized and cheap scalable source. So it's again a matter of a combination between a rich physics and also a peculiar broad range of application that the miniaturization and SIP scalable sides of this kind of emitters can offer. So first they are miniaturized, they show high brilliance, they show low power consumption, they are capable nowadays to operate up to 250K in a compact thermoelectric cooler, promising groundbreaking perspective for real-time in-situ application. And also being inter-suburban devices, they can be tailored to operate across an extremely broad range of frequency from the mid-IR up to the far infrared, playing with the thickness, with the material, with the doping, and with the band structure design that can, this kind of laser can offer. So they are not intraband lasers like the standard semiconductor laser, but they are intercepted. The range of applications that touch terahertz photonics necessitates expansive research and development endeavors that may not necessarily intersect. Terahertz radiation is its own zone within the electromagnetic spectrum. Aside from the fact that both may involve terahertz sources, nothing says that threat detection and particle acceleration must be linked. Still, we asked our expert if a sort of terahertz community exists among researchers. So the community is quite broad. Of course, there are uh, a different kind of research direction and different kind of groups that are uh, working on the same and on similar research line in the terahertz community. But I think that this community is also quite collaborative. So between each other, we have a broad range of collaborations. And... Uh, Mostly the effort of everyone is to try to push this terrestrial technology to become competitive with the technology that we have in photonics in the mid-IR. And for this reason, there are uh, the research direction mostly focused on the generation and research direction mostly focused on the detection and the manipulation and also on some application perspective in many fields. Imaging setup, spectroscopy setup, microscopy setup, and all of that are very much connected. So that's helpful context to tie in what's happened, what's happening uh, in the in the IR. I don't know if community is the right word, but it is helpful context. You were honored with the 2021 Frida Volterra Prize by the Italian French Physical Societies, in great part for your development of terahertz range devices. Can you tell us about some of the innovations? in some of the applications that those um, that that development supports and for what you were recognized for? Yes. So in the last 10 years, I have worked extensively on three major research directions in the terrestrial frequency domain. The first one concerned the development of quantum cascade lasers 
working like random lasers and also working like frequency comp synthesizer. And from that, I have achieved the, the first demonstration of an electrically pumped random terrace laser operating in continuous wave and the demonstration of frequency comp synthesizer with a record dynamic range of operation in a standard configuration, but also exploiting two-dimensional materials like graphene coupled on chip with this uh, frequency comps done with terrace QC lasers. A second major research direction concerned the development of the room temperature terrace photodetectors, exploiting one-dimensional materials like semiconductor nanowires, but also 2D materials like graphene, van der Waals heterostructure, black phosphorus, and the combination of those, which actually shows the state-of-the-art performances in terms of noise equivalent power, in terms of responsivity, and also in terms of speed because this kind of detectors works on ultra-fast time scale with record response time at room temperature. I have also extensively worked on the uh, development of devices in the terrace frequency range capable to manipulate the terrace frequency light and to give a few examples, modulators still done with the 2D materials like graphene and also switches for electronic waves done with 2D material. And finally, the third major research direction concerned the development of near-field optical microscopy setup working in the terrestrial frequency domain. And my group have pioneered the demonstration of the first detectorless scattering near-field optical microscope that can really open intriguing perspective for mapping 2D materials and for mapping also devices on a nanometer scale because it relies on the use of a quantum cascade lasers that is not only working like a source, but is also working like a detector. So it's capable to sense the backscattered light from the tip of the microscope and to map and reconstruct the image of the properties of the materials or the devices underneath the tip of the microscope with an extremely high level of spatial and spectral resolution. I want to ask about maybe a mindset type of question. When you're working in terahertz range or you're working with quantum cascade lasers, that opens you up to be able to work in different technologies and applications. When you're pursuing research or you're launching a project, or you're writing a proposal, are you thinking, well, you know, it's time to work with microscopy or you know, maybe we can get into 2D materials here. What's your mindset like? Are you sort of uh, always thinking new or are you sort of thinking, how can I expand? You know, it's, it's interesting to get these perspectives from different researchers in the R&D stage. So usually what I do, I look to the challenges that are actually missing and the things that are really needed to push forward the development in this terrace frequency range. And using the ingredients that I know, I try to combine the things together to address this challenging. For example, we got a lot of expertise in my group relating to the quantum engineering and nanofabrication of QC lasers and the same we did with 2D materials. And of course, we have a broad expertise in the spectroscopic and optical and photonic technique in the terrestrial frequency range. So practically, we have all the ingredients to build up a new research direction in this field. And so I look to the challenge and I try to reply, to answer to this challenge with the development of new techniques and new devices that are really missing in this domain. Dr. Vitiello has contributed numerous papers and research advances on saturable absorption a materials property in which light absorption decreases as light intensity increases. Saturable absorbers are commercially available elements, often in mirror or crystal form. They're highly desired in terahertz frequencies given the need to operate with ultra-short pulses. The development of these elements has evolved. 
current work aims to optimize them for high absorption modulation and to be easily integrated into miniature light sources. So a saturable absorber is an optical element and the core physics mechanism behind its operation is that uh, the decrease of light absorption with increasing light intensity. Usually, saturable absorbers operating in transmission or in reflection are routinely used to mod-lock lasers, meaning that they can allow emitting short pulses from the lasers when they are embedded in the cavity as derived from continuous wave operation, standard continuous wave operation of these devices. It's very desirable to have a saturable absorber in the terrace frequency range because, uh, of course, in this kind of miniaturized sources like the quantum cascade lasers, it's needed to embed intracavity a saturable absorber that can allow pushing the operation of these lasers in the ultra-fast regime, so it can allow emitting short passes. And therefore, the possibility to develop a saturable absorber with high absorption modulation and also a saturable absorber which can be easy to be deposited or embedded in tricavity in a miniaturized lasers can offer unusual possibility to push the ultra-fast photonic uh, in the terrestrial frequency regime. And this is why one of the main things that I did with this 2D material is to try to develop, uh, starting from that, some saturable absorber that can be easy to be transferred, to be integrated in the cavity of these lasers. We mentioned um, the 2017 paper that you co-authored, Terahertz Science and Technology Roadmap. Certainly your work predates the publication of that paper. With this discussion in mind, with that paper in mind, and it's it's the contents of that paper in mind, how far have we come in a broad sense to bridging the terahertz gap? So the progress has been amazing in the last decade, and uh, certainly we are not so far to cover that range because nowadays we have very powerful sources, very powerful detectors, very powerful optical components to modulate and manipulate light. But since you mentioned this roadmap, I have to tell you that we are now writing a new roadmap, which is called the 2022 Roadmap for Terahertz Photonics. And uh, if I can say uh, there are next challenges in this frequency range. And the next challenges will certainly be related with the quantum technology field, which is actually one of the main uh, frontier and one of the main uh, challenge of the bull community working in photonics and in solid state physics. And why terrors can be so appealing for this quantum technology? First of all, because considering the strong absorption of water vapor, from the large part of terrestrial spectrum, intersatellite communication in space can be an ideal environment for the deployment of terrestrial QC lasers and as well as very short-range outdoor applications, meaning that this kind of radiation can be exploited for optical and quantum communication in the far infrared. Also, carrier signal electrofrequency can be employed ideally to enable wireless implementation of the quantum key distribution in the terrestrial frequency domain in a few photon communication systems where the carrier photons need to display higher or similar energy as compared to the thermal background noise. And also, terrestrial quantum entanglement distribution can be valuable deployment option in the microsatellite communication constants. And another important frontier and next challenge is also to develop single photon detectors and single photon sources in this uh, appealing and intriguing uh, frontier like the terahertz frequency domain. That concludes this week's episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to our news editor, Jake Saltzman, as well as to this week's sponsors. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, and let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthings at photonics.com. 
All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website, photonics.com.